0: This morning we continue our series on godly grieving from the book of Lamentations. Last week concluded by looking at Judah's less than ideal attempt at confessing her sins and repenting toward God. The Lord was disciplining his people for their unfaithfulness and idolatry. Chapter 1 ends with Judah more concerned with the Lord punishing Babylon for oppressing her than personally dealing with her own rebellion against her Lord. As stated last week, self-pity is not genuine repentance. They are two very different things. Self-pity fixates you on your hardships and frames you as a victim only, making light of your own rebellion, if not excusing it altogether, while looking for someone or something to blame. Repentance admits inexcusable rebellion against your good and gracious Lord and Savior, who has a right to rule your life. He created you and redeemed you, And you owe him obedience from your heart for all he commands you, without exception. We are in our difficult circumstances because we are at fault, not God. God has never treated you or anyone unfairly. Today, we want to begin to look at the author's description of Jerusalem and Judah's destruction, his pleading with Judah to pray, and again Judah's failed attempt to get her Lord's attention, and how this applies to us in our context. Let's look at Lamentations chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants, the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces he has laid in runes its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in runes his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand. From destroying, he caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. In silence, they have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. I want to stop there for a moment and talk about these particular verses before we move on. Uh, Just like in chapter 1, chapter 2 begins with the word how or alas. It is the title of this book in Hebrew. This word conveys how on earth could destruction of this magnitude ever happen to this nation of all nations and in this holy place of all places? The first 10 verses describe the demolition of all the people of Judah, their dwelling places, and their place of worship where God dwelt. Moreover, it is the Lord, not Babylon, who is active in bringing this destruction. Babylon is a mere instrument in his holy hand. It has been noted that in these first verses, 28 verbs are used to describe the destruction the Lord brings against his own people. Look at this. In verse 1, the Lord has placed his daughter under a cloud not like the cloud when she came out of Egypt to lead her in the wilderness and give her direction, not like uh, the cloud that filled the temple uh, that Solomon built uh, to, to demonstrate his presence and his dwelling with his people to bless her. No, this is a cloud of judgment for her sin. The extent of her descent is described as a fall from heaven to earth. Heaven's connection with earth had been broken. Heaven touched earth at the temple in Jerusalem. It's how God related to his people. But now God's footstool has been trampled by him. He's broken the relationship. The homes of his people in verses 2 and 3 have been swallowed up. The Bible says without mercy, all of her protections, her strongholds have been demolished and removed in God's wrath. God is the one who has humiliated Judah's reign and rulers. God is seen as wielding an axe, cutting down all the strong and mighty of his people in fierce anger. He has removed his hand of protection over his people in order that their enemies might invade, capture, steal, and destroy them. God is pictured as a turbulent, consuming fire, destroying his people in the midst of Jacob, it says. In verse 4, God is behaving like an enemy, like a foe god it is said has killed all those of zion who were delightful in judah's eyes again the language of god's fury poured out like poured out without restraint conveys that uh, what is implied um, by the psalmist you know that psalm if the lord marks iniquity who could stand well when the lord marks iniquities No one can stand. Verse 5 again states, The Lord has become like an enemy. Israel and all her palaces and glory have been swallowed up. All her protections have been demolished and brought to ruin. And he, their Lord, has caused mourning and lamentation to be multiplied. The Bible talks about God turning your mourning into dancing. Well, here the dancing has turned into mourning. Verses six and seven even even expound more and and get worse with the Lord wasting His dwelling place, His temple. It says that He, like a like a like a shed made of grass, He. Just like a booth, he stomped out his own footstool. All the joys, the festivities, the celebrations of this holy place have been forgotten. The king that governed, protected, and kept peace. The priest who led the people to God and instructed them in his ways have been trampled by the Lord. He has rejected his altar which was the path to forgiveness, the path to communion with him at this time. He's broken the relationship. God emphasizes that his sanctuary, that holy place, that holy ground has been denied by him. He refuses to acknowledge his temple. All these sacred and holy places and holy people have been given into the hands of the Babylonians. And they, the Babylonians, rejoice and celebrate Judah's destruction like a festival, like a holiday. Verse 8 speaks of the Lord's premeditated, planned, and measured destruction of Judah. Verse 9 speaks of the gates of the city, which pointed to her protection, but also her commerce and where the elders sat making decisions. These gates have been buried. All of the rulers have been exiled. They are said to be among the nations. Now the laws of Babylon govern the land. And there is no word, no vision from the Lord for his people. It is as if God's people are without hope or a future and it is all because of their idolatry. In verse 10 yet another group, the elders, leaders of tribes are silenced by the suffering. They're covered with dust and sackcloth mourning the loss The young women known for dancing and rejoicing with tambourines and wedding songs are all bowed down. Judah came to realize the seriousness of God's wrath. Today, many in the church, maybe you, don't take God's wrath seriously or even His discipline of his people but it is a fearful thing said to believing people in the new testament it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god god really is a consuming fire who is not to be taken lightly when we all grow up you know what our parents tell us don't play with fire Well, that's especially, infinitely true with respect to God. When you think about Israel's sin, what hope do you have? What hope do any of us have? Are you better than they are? You never have a problem with idolatry? Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about the verses we just looked at, verses 1 through 10... In light of Jesus. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who received upon himself when he was crucified. The fierce anger and wrath of God. He was the one who was under the cloud of divine judgment. He was the one who was sent from heaven to earth. He describes himself as someone falling from heaven to earth in John chapter 12 not as a footstool, but as the very head. That's who Jesus is. And yet on the cross, it was, as the hymn writer uh, wrote, it was his sacred head that was wounded with grief and pain weighed down. He received on the cross no mercy. Death was given dominion over Jesus On the cross, it swallowed him up. Like the fish that swallowed Jonah. Only later to be spewed out, as it were. Death couldn't hold him down. But it had him on the cross. It took him over and dominated him on the cross. Jesus, more than anyone, was dishonored. And though the king, he was cut down by the Lord in fierce anger because of your sins. God's hand of blessing was lifted off of his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And Jesus became a curse on Calvary. The flame of God's wrath burned hot against Jesus and God was like his enemy, like his foe. Just like Judah, those they took delight in were wasted. Jesus was beloved and well-pleasing to God, yet God poured out his fury like fire and killed him on Calvary, for he had become sin. The Lord swallowed Jesus up Jesus was laid in ruins in the tomb. His mourning and lamentations were multiplied on the cross. He was wasted by God, the very meeting place of God. He is the temple. He was destroyed. This king, this priest was denied life and entry into God's presence. On Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was scorned and disowned when he became our sin. Jesus was delivered over to the hand of death. And Satan and the demons rejoiced at his demise. Yet long before God determined, just like with Judah, to do this. He determined it. The crucifixion was planned, premeditated, and predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. Jesus, the king, was among the nations of Israel and Rome and became subject to their unjust laws. The chief elder was silenced. Like the hymn writer said, scornfully surrounded with thorns. His only crown. Well, where does this leave us? There are several things these verses teach us. First, God does judge His people when we don't repent of our sins. Ananias and his wife Sapphira uh, were New Testament saints who God struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Many people in the church of the New Testament, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, were weak, ill, and dead because of not honoring the body of Christ, not loving other believers. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy and those in Ephesus, if if we deny Jesus, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And this passage means that, like Judah, God will apply the punishments for covenant unfaithfulness when we are persistently faithless toward Christ. The Lord warns that all who persist in denying Christ should only expect a fearful, furious, consuming, fiery judgment. That's said to Christians in the book of Hebrews. Jesus warns Ephesus, Unless you repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Many churches close because there's a failure to repent. He tells Pergamon, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. This is Jesus talking to the saints in the New Testament. To the church, he warned Thyatira of great tribulation unless they repent of sexual immorality. A bed of affliction. He even threatened to murder children if warnings to repent were ignored. He told Laodicea he would spit them out of his mouth unless they repent of their sins. God takes holiness seriously and and we must also. This is one of the things the passage in Lamentation teaches us is is not to play with God. He's not a toy. Second, this passage teaches us that God will not be mocked. Related to the first point, the second point is that God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. If you plant apple seeds, you would be foolish to expect grapefruit at harvest time. Judah persisted in idolatry and were paying the price. And so will all who persist in sin. God will not be mocked but he will be exalted among the nations and in the world. The question is whether he will use you to that end. Israel came out of Egypt and came to the front door of the Promised Land, and they didn't believe in God. And so God said, you die right here in the wilderness. I'll use another generation to extend my kingdom. And I thoroughly believe that those people who died in the wilderness We're not all lost for eternity. But they would not believe that God would use them to have the impact. He promised he would with those who faithfully walk with him. God is going to be exalted. The question is, will he use you to that end? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, Jesus says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt was put on meat to keep it fresh. God put you in this world to keep it from rottening as a preservative. But if you've lost your taste, Jesus says you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Incidentally, that's actually what happened to the first century Jewish nation that would not be the salt they were called to be. The call to be holy and to be salt are duties and delights that we must take seriously. And they are duties and they are delights because Jesus is devoted to you. God is not, however, playing around. He is looking for fruit, a return on what He has invested in you. You know Jonah, the Bible says. It was his sin that caused the storm. They threw him in the water and the storm stopped. I often wonder how many storms in the world are caused because followers of Christ are not obeying their Lord, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. I wonder how many storms are started and precipitate because you and I, are not doing what God has called us to do. That's a real thing. Third, this passage teaches you that because Jesus has taken the wrath, because Jesus has taken the wrath, because Jesus has taken the furious judgment of God for your sins, you are bound to be grateful and live in response To such grace. The real question these verses are looking forward to in Lamentations is why, of all people, was Jesus crushed and cursed on Calvary? And it's because God despises your sin, yet He takes great delight in you. You, in like manner, should despise your sin and take great delight in him and what he aims to accomplish for his namesake in and through your life. Verses 11 through uh, 19 picture uh, the lamenter weeping and heartbroken over Judah's state. Let's read verse 11. Chapter 2. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? as they faint like a wounded man in the streets. Of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen For you false and deceptive visions, they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes, no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him, for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. These verses picture the lamenter brokenhearted, weeping over Judah's state, and he pleads with her, in verses 18 and 19, uh, to pray to the Lord and not give up, which which speaks of Judah having stopped praying. Remember, the elders were silent. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to think at their state. In verses 11 and 12, he observes the most tender human relationships between a mother and infants destroyed. In verses 13 and 14, you see, he thinks of the fact that there's nothing he can say. There's no word of comfort he can bring to them. He's trying to compare their particular state to something else that he's seen so that he can give some kind of comfort, but there's nothing like it. And there's nothing like it because there was was no nation like Israel. There was no nation that God had done the things he had done for Israel. And so this state of judgment is incomparable. But we know it can, in fact, be compared to christ on the cross he asked this question in verse 14 who can heal you and we know that only christ can bring healing verse 14 says that here's part of the reason one of the main reasons why they fell into this state it says that they're prophets They lied to them. False and deceptive visions. And here's the clincher in the middle of verse 14. They have not exposed your iniquity. The prophets, the preachers, they wouldn't talk about the people's sin. They wouldn't expose it. They wouldn't bring it up. And look at what it says. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. The way to restoration is the way of repentance. It's the way of confessing sin, exposing sin, turning from sin. That's what brings restoration. Turning from sin, turning to God, believing in his power. But these, these the lamenter has nothing to say in this situation. Because he sees that the prophets lie, they deceived, they wouldn't bring up sin or talk about it. They wouldn't expose the iniquity in the land. Verses 15 and 16 speak of the laughter and glee of Judah's enemies at her demise. Judah's demise brought joy to Babylon. They clapped their hands, they laughed, they rejoiced. Finally was there. Statement: We finally have seen their downfall, and it's interesting because hypocrisy is something so easy to 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 see, and and as you think about the church in our day, there's so much hypocrisy within the church, and 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 unbelievers can see hypocrisy; they can see uh, pride and self-righteousness, and as Many unbelievers who rejoice when church leaders fall, when churches close down, because their whole position is, I knew they were hypocrites. I knew they didn't really walk with God after all. They just sing the songs and pray the prayers and preach the sermons, but in their heart of hearts, they're not real. And people can pick up on that, and people could pick up that on, uh, on and Judas. Failure to to really walk faithfully with the Lord. And verse 17 um, brings up the sobering truth that the Lord has done what he purposed. Back in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, uh, God promised his people. He warned his people. He threatened his people that if they walk away from him, if they fall into idolatry, if they persist in their sin and in their rebellion, he would come after them. He would come after them and he would judge them and bring them down. And that's exactly what verse 17 says about God. He's carried out his word. Long ago, he made a command. Long ago, he said he would do this. But Judah didn't take it seriously. It's the same thing that's said of Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's the same warnings he gives to the seven churches there. If they refuse to repent, he's coming after them. He's coming against them. That's the language of Jesus. That's the language he uses with respect to his church in that day. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When churches refuse to repent of sin, Jesus comes after him. He comes against them. People don't want to hear it today, but it's the truth that needs to be heard. And then in verse 18 and 19, he speaks to a people who, who haven't been praying, who haven't been calling on the Lord. And he, he, it's like the, the lamenter rouses him and says, get up, pray, weep, weep all day, weep all night. What are you doing? You should be praying. You should be crying out to God and repenting. What's wrong with you? And that's what he calls them to. And notice how this this section, verses 11 through 19, are framed by infants. They're bookended by the brokenness over the infants who suffer because of Judah's sin. There's a lot of infants suffering right now in the world. Unborn infants. When it comes to abortion. There's a lot of other infants that are suffering, children that are suffering because of injustices. But sometimes the church is is not even moved by these realities. It's a woman's right to choose. That's a load of garbage. And the church won't say it. But it is garbage, it's sin, it's murder. Then finally, in verses 20 through 22, Judah raises her voice and cries. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them. In the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity, you summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side and on a day of the anger of the Lord. No one escaped or survived, thus whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Again, Judah prays, and it's more about accusing the Lord and being embarrassed and harassed by enemies than about her sin and rebellion against her Lord and Savior. She complains about what the Lord is doing rather than owning her sin and her rebellion. How about us? Do we do that? Do you do that? In verses 20 and 21, it is more of an accusation against the Lord than a humble confession of personal and national sin. Look at what it says in verse 20. With whom have you dealt thus? It's like, who do you think you are doing this to us, of all people? What's wrong with you, Lord? That's the nature of what she's saying. Judah speaks of her children, who she says she raised. And yet the Lord, who is cast now as her enemy, has destroyed. There's no personal ownership of her sins. No acknowledgement that it was the Lord who actually gave her those children. So the Lord is silent, as he always is when we refuse to acknowledge our sins. When you confess sin, he forgives sin. When we can it and don't want to talk about sin and own up to it, God shuts his ears. That's what the Bible teaches. If I cherish iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayer. That's said by a believer. When you confess your sin, do you simply tell God what is wrong with your life and what's wrong with the world in which you live? Do you just complain about all the trouble or do you take ownership and blame and responsibility for your part in the mess. Again, the lamentous question in verse 14 calls us to hope. Who can heal you? Jesus heals, and Jesus can heal you, and Jesus can heal the land in which we live. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked way, Then God hears from heaven. He forgives sin, our sin, believers' sin, and he brings healing to the land in which they live. The principle carries over what was said by Solomon. God opposes proud people. He does not hear prayer when you cherish iniquity in your heart. The Lord is always ready to forgive. He has provided in Jesus for your restoration but it requires a genuine self-examination and repentance in light of the cross of Christ. Paul said, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When you recognize how wonderful the Lord is, you discover how wicked you and your sins really are. When you recognize how wicked you and your sins are, you discover how wonderful Jesus' cross is. And when you recognize how wonderful Jesus' cross is, you recognize how worthy Jesus is of constant and complete devotion. God bless you.